a new era is upon us, and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders, and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present-day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Hey there, I am Jeffrey Berman. Thrilled to be here again. And I'm Zach Aarons. I'm they call me the Ed McMahon of this podcast because I'm not exactly a co-host. I'm not exactly a permanent guest. So I'm I'm just like Ed, Ed McMahon or Andy Richter. Today on Tangent, we have Amir Korangi, founder, chairman, and publisher at The Real Deal. Hi, Amir. Do I have to ask where does this podcast find you? No, I'm on the holidays actually, but uh Somehow this landed, uh, this podcast landed on my holiday, which is fine. And um, I'm in Mexico, in Boca Paia. Muy bien. Great. I mean, I was assuming you were in New York City because that's that's where you've been uh, conquering real estate media for the past 20 years. Mexico is always a good idea. And if you remember, actually, I came to you before I came here and I was going I was thinking about spending the month in Costa Rica and you uh, advised against me going to Costa Rica. So now I'm in Mexico instead. Wait, well, hold on. I want to hear about that. Why? Why would you? Didn't you spend a whole bunch of time in Costa Rica, Edward? Listen, this is this is what shows that I'm I'm a true Costa Rican. However, I care when I recommend something. I was just four weeks in Costa Rica. I drove to the Caribbean coast. It takes usually four hours for two hundred kilometers. On the way back, it took us nine hours for the same amount of time. So I didn't want Amir Korangi spending nine hours in his car when he could be recording this podcast. Bam! <laughs> that works. It was a nightmare, but I had a great time. Amir, the state of media, slight tangent right now, Zuck versus Elon, Twitter versus threads. What's going on here? Give us your take. Personally, I was not a huge uh, Twitter fan I and I didn't get much engagement from it in the past. But when Elon Musk bought it, I was uh, I was really interested in it. And I went on Twitter at, like more actively after Elon Musk bought it. And I, I'm, I really... I'm enjoying it right now, which is great. And I actually thought to myself, and I see the engagement and I see what he's doing there. And I thought if it was a public company, I did, I was, you know, it's the wrong thing to say probably right now, but I actually, if it was a public company, I would have invested in it because I thought they were making changes fast. They, I thought the product was, uh, had become better personally. A lot of people were complaining about it, but I like the fact that uh, he cut half the staff and he was able to produce. I mean, as a user, it wasn't noticed. I didn't notice that half the staff had gone. There were more glitches, but nothing that would uh, change my user experience uh, in the sense where I would be like, I absolutely don't want to be on here. In terms of threads, I'm not uh, I'm not going to go on there. I mean, there's so many social platforms. I just can't keep up with it. And it's and then you know what happens? They all want to force their own messaging on there. And then you're responsible for getting back to DMs on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter and your own emails and text messages and WhatsApp and it all piles up. And I, I tell you, I think I'm talking to some, uh, you know, uh, VC guys here. I think 
a great idea would be a tool that can collect your messages from all these different tools and put it into one app and say, this is, here's all your DMs from Instagram. Here's all your emails. Here's your text messages. If all that stuff could be on one app where I could just go and respond to them in that one app, instead of opening up eight different apps to respond to people, that would be an incredible tool. I don't know if it exists. I looked at it before. I didn't see anything for it. I know there's a trademark for something like that, but um, nobody's really put out a product for it. But uh, yes, I'm not on threads. I don't plan. I don't plan on going on there either. Yeah, I. You know, it. It. it it's funny. I, I. don't do social media beyond LinkedIn. Um, although my dogs do have an Instagram account, and they are Instagram famous, uh, as they ought to be. At the friends Hansel, everybody. But my dogs can't type, so they're not going to use threads. Um, I don't Twitter. Um, but I. I also think it's like the difference between a LinkedIn and an Instagram, whereas one should be more geared towards business and one is geared more towards social clearly or, or social commerce. Twitter feels like there's now, I know I'm going to get pilloried for this, but an adult in the room that is saying like, hey, this is how this, this platform should be run. And it doesn't need this bloated employee account. It doesn't need X, Y, and Z. And, and we, we want to prioritize free speech, whether or not he's Elon is doing that. I'm I, I'm not on it, so I can't I can't opine. But I don't think it would be surprising to me if Threads were was able to uh, take some of Twitter's the bona fides that Twitter's created as being a political tool and a business tool and and migrate that to the, the Rocks platform. Right, and you know one of the challenges with that is that you see these people who become stars on these platforms, and they don't want to risk trying to recreate that on another platform. It's a major risk. If you look, if you look at the Vine stars, remember those guys? They were like video famous when Vine was out. Vine, just to clarify, the six-second video loop video that was on Twitter for a bit, and that's for the kids. I, I guess I'm showing my age too. This was from no. like ten years. Ago. Right. But, no, it was uh, great. But those people didn't transition to uh, TikTok. They didn't transition to Instagram. Those new platforms created their new stars. So when I talk to, you know, on Twitter, I, there's there's a, a real estate Twitter that's very good. It's very informative, and we get a lot of news out of it. Uh, when I talk to some of these guys, they have no intention of moving that conversation to Threads. And I don't know how Threads got to 100 million users. I guess it's it was a faster growing app than uh, ChatGPT, which is uh, – which seems unbelievable to me. And by unbelievable, I, I, I feel like they're manipulating the numbers somehow because with ChatGPT, there was some phenomenon there where you were like, I have to sign up for this. This is so remarkable. I have to see it. So you could see 100 million people signing up for that in a month. But with Threads, I don't see that many people being excited about another Twitter platform. I think uh, there was some sort of manipulation that happened with that 100 million uh, downloads. But uh I'm not sure. I, my guys had talked about it, but I wasn't. I, I don't know the full details. Yeah, I mean, I only use. Uh, I'm only on Truth Social, so I don't know. Whether, <laughs> that and Rumble, you're works. rocking it. <laughs> that hat is a winner on Truth Social. Let me tell you, that hat would totally. Well, I, I know, and that's I. Li I lived it. Don't let this this facade of the native New York coastal elite fool you. I'm, I'm from the heartland, baby. Zach is our chameleon, okay? Last week, he was Professor Zach. The previous week, he was a sensei. And this week, he's a trucker. He's a man of the people. 
Actually, he's he's all of those things. That's what you understand. All he's the above. A, he's a chameleon in the truest yeah. sense of the word. I think so. In terms of chat, I my, one of our our friends who's a VC just went out to the uh, OpenAI headquarters and visited their team. They apparently have two hundred million daily active users. That's DAU. That's not install base. That's active and a team of sixty people total <laughs> running around putting out uh, fire after fire. So apparently uh, it's a pretty wild place to go visit. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think Threads is most likely going to die out. I think what I've seen from a real estate and construction perspective that I find fascinating is TikTok's impact on you know, general contractors, subcontractors, they get home, they're on TikTok. We have a lot of portfolio companies who are actively marketing to those folks using kind of growth hacker type techniques that I would have thought would be impossible 10 years ago to market to subcontractors or property managers. And they're having they're having success. And the reason they're having it is because to Jeff's point, there are these even if it's not a, a business network like a LinkedIn, you're seeing business being transacted in Facebook groups, on TikTok channels, Instagram threads in terms of marketing. So it's it's fascinating. And whole businesses, there's actually a construction tech startup that it just started as an Instagram thread for contractors. And they've now built out a whole platform with content and software. And so we're seeing the power of social media launching businesses and the users of it are, you know, when I started, I started in 2010 trying to do Facebook marketing for real estate and everyone thought we were crazy. And now it's crazy if you don't do that and no one's even on Facebook anymore. The whole dialogues moved to Instagram and, but you know, Twitter, what I think is special about Twitter that to Amir's point won't leave is Twitter different than any other social network has a, they call it retweet has a real estate community that discusses actually important issues, similar to the actually important issues we discuss on this program. And that dialogue is so important that a lot of people will hang around, even if they disagree with the new management, even if they're annoyed by the outages, they actually can't get that content for free anywhere else. And so they're going to, the real estate community, in my opinion, is going to stick with Twitter. Yeah, I think so too. There's other uh, there's other industries that have their own verticals on Twitter too, and, and I think, I mean, for media, for example, you know, we we get more fresh news from there than any news outlet that's covering media. So for us, you know, we cover we follow it. I think journalists, you know, obviously are known to love Twitter, but uh, yeah, for that real estate Twitter, we have all of our reporters are on there looking at what people are talking about and what we should be covering. So it's. It's definitely on the edge of things, which is great. And then, but but it's interesting though because I know Real Deal has a pretty active Instagram page, and it's good because it's like it smacks you in your face. It says, "Oh, this is something interesting that's happening. Go click link in bio." And it's interesting to see how look that that was obviously the impetus for Threads because they saw people saying like, "Okay, they're getting their their the base content from Twitter." They're digesting it and then putting it out in a graphical form on Instagram so that people are, you know, people are scrolling, 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 which is a call to action then to leave their site. And Zuckerberg saying like, well, no, I just want to keep everything here. And it, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how this, how this all plays out.
at the very least, it'll be a nice feature for Instagram to have. Parking policy has become a huge obstacle across many cities. Whether your city needs comprehensive traffic improvements, more bike lanes, or more housing, parking policy is always in the way. The Parking Reform Network is here to support real estate professionals and community members working in any discipline impacted by costly parking mandates. Car dependency has played a big role in suburbia. It has also played a major role in the story of how we ended up with inefficient sprawl, climate change, and a housing crisis. By reforming how our cities work and to what land uses we dedicate our spaces to, the Parking Reform Network helps make progress on our climate, transportation, and housing goals. Now you can also have a positive impact on your community safety and quality of life through research and collaboration. To get involved, please visit parkingreform.org. To learn about the Parking Reform Network's resources, please visit parkingreform.org or follow them on Twitter at parking underscore reform. I have to say, Amir, when we did the investor pass uh, Instagram videos for The Real Deal in 2008, I've never gotten more eyeballs on anything metaprop related most likely than when we were doing those videos and people came all over and so you know the following was tremendous back then and 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 continues to be so and i i just remember it was one of the first things we did in the new office and it was a relatively new video series for you guys as well but that was that was clearly a point i think it was 2018 when we were seeing this transition to you know, people wanting to consume this short form video content. And that was the impetus for the, you know, the most infamous failure in startup history, Quibi, right? It was the idea was like, you're going to want these little snacks, these little video nuggets, but obviously the execution didn't happen. And then COVID. I wonder if that was, if that was an idea that died too soon, because you're seeing like, you're, you're seeing kids, they can't watch a movie now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, it's there, but, but, and it's interesting. I've read somewhere there's, I do not have the, the actual statistical data behind this, but shows from our youth, like friends and Seinfeld skyrocketing in popularity because they can watch their 22 minutes, 18 to 22 minutes without the commercials. So just enough time for the Gen Z, uh, Henry Lynn addled mind, by the way, I, I love that, uh, that, you know, they can, they can, they can just watch something quick. It's fun. Maybe watch two or three episodes. Yeah, I, I do agree that I think Quibi died maybe too soon, or maybe they launched it too soon. That's the that's a case of the founders having way too much data early, like they had access to really good data early, where the rest of the world wasn't there quite yet. And you know, maybe if they had if they they started it a few years later, or they were able to carry it for a few years, it would have caught on. But yeah. and it launched right before the lockdown when no one the idea was like, I would consume this five minute video while I'm on the subway platform. Everyone defaulted to long for everyone's like, well, I'm at home, I'm just gonna binge watch, uh, you know, I'm gonna watch Fitzcarraldo for the first time, I'm gonna binge watch, you know, Tiger King 12. It doesn't matter how long it is, so that was effectively just bad timing. But yeah, I think this idea of and and we're seeing it in what we find tremendous is this whole idea, and I know Jeff's invested in it as well, but like the idea of diffusion and proliferation of real estate training and information with these new micro nugget uh, videos, like in order to learn the real estate business back in the day, you had to apprentice for somebody or you had to go 
physically to one of these schools and take these really, really long, really dry, really boring courses to get your license. I think now you're seeing creative people reimagine real estate. And Ryan Searhant does this as well, better than anybody. Reimagining how real estate, how the next generation of real estate professionals are going to be trained to effectively do real estate, whether it's appraisal, surveying, brokerage, whatever. These are all technical skills. And they're, that generation is not, they want to consume these this information in nuggets and they want to consume it on video. They don't want to sit in a classroom. You know, that, that model is just fundamentally broken. Yeah, but but the future is really going to be what they have in the matrix. You know, just plug it in and then upload the uh, upload. Listen, the, listen. You know, I think it's worth pointing out how TikTok really changed the paradigm here. TikTok not only made most of the silent majority that was participating on social media, they made them into creators, but it's also being educational and it's also driving business. So clearly a big threat to all social media, but I would say is in particular to LinkedIn. Now, I also want to point out, I'm quite surprised to hear you're all discounting the absolute undisputed king of social media, Mark Zuckerberg, competing in his own field, doing exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing that he's been doing since he was at Harvard. He's taking someone else's ideas, he's taking all the data, and he executes and he scales. And I'm just going to say that I'm not on threads. I'm resisting and I will continue to resist. I love Twitter. I think... Amir pointed out community, like right now you can give someone $1 billion that there's two things in media that they won't be able to replicate easily or at all. One thing is creating a brand and more importantly, creating a community with stickiness and a community that provides value and that fosters growth and makes people want to stay regardless if someone else just bought the, the platform, fired every single engineer. Uh, and then send those engineers to the competitor to create threads. So yeah, I, look, I think you're right. I I did not say that threads would die. The 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 difference is I don't think threads is going to replace Twitter as the political, maybe the social, but the but the political business and and source of truth function that it has served, whether whether it's truth or not. That if you listen to what Amir is saying, Amir's publishing from it. Like that's where they're getting their ideas. I don't think they're going to get that from Threads in the same way that they're going to get that from Twitter. We could be wrong. And you know, Twitter became really popular early on with journalists. Uh, so we, it was someplace that we always went there to find information and share information. And it's a great feed. I mean, I can't think of a better news feed. Just these links that you're interested in and popping up these stories. Hey, that fine, you're I'll join Twitter. Jeez, guys. <laughs> join Twitter. It'll be good. Oh, and the other thing, I mean, I think you also hinted at this. Twitter's latest change is it's all, it's all about engagement, right? Which I think that will should foster community. In such a short time, they were able to add more photos. It allowed for you to upload more text, more videos. So it's it has all of this this X app that Elon wants to create, and that's what makes it impressive for me. Is that I don't know if you guys are familiar with WeChat, but it's I think it's the most popular app in the world. It's the Tencent. Uh, uh, you know, the, the all you can do everything on that. And when we did business in China, we had to communicate with people on WeChat. You were forced to communicate. Even the CEO of Morgan Stanley, he was like, "DM, don't email me. DM me on WeChat." And it was the it was the everything app, and it was amazing. I was like, "This is incredible. Why can't we have this in the United States?" And I think that's where Elon is going with uh, Twitter, and that's why I thought it's a good stock to buy because the changes that he made are making it, uh, you know, a formative, uh, you know, app that's 
that people are going to be drawn to it. I, I feel like I'm seeing more and more of my uh, uh, like uh, my colleagues and my friends hopping on Twitter that they were never there before. So that's why uh, I liked where it was going. And also Twitter is creating opportunities for users to actually make money. The fact that people can have subscriptions and uh, you know, if you have a million followers or a hundred thousand followers and you get a thousand people to subscribe to you, all of a sudden you have a new form of income just from your tweets. That's incredible, you know, and they've never had that before. You know, meta is not designed to make money for its creators. It's made, it's designed to make money for itself where Elon is saying, I'm going to come and all the, you know, subscription money goes to you. If you generate this kind of revenue, we split it 50, 50 and it's encouraging people to, uh, you know, participate in, what he's offering absolutely and TikTok does that too. i think tiktok does a great job of uh giving credit and revenues to its creators without a doubt twitter was sleep at the wheel for the good amount of the last decade and it's super exciting seeing them churn new features test experiment fail them fast and and just trying to give back value and create more value for the power users and for those communities that are clearly aren't leaving regardless if they get limited to how many tweets they can see or whatnot. I think that's undoubtedly exciting for all of us innovators that want to see just the next stage of social media and, and fostering communities. Talking about communities, Amir, let's move on to the real deals uh, audience. Talk about fostering community in this era of, of hyper-connectivity, right? And, and the importance of it. Who's part of the real deals community? How do you connect with them as a brand? How do you generate network effects? Those are uh, loaded questions, but, you know, I always tell my staff, you know, if we were in the 1980s or the 1990s, we wouldn't have to change our business model for decades. In the last 10 years, we've changed our business model three times. And I feel like the more technology comes into play, the more you have to sort of pivot and shift and figure out where your money's come from. Luckily for us, it's allowed us to... Uh, with, you know, generate more revenues with the same kind of staff. So that it, the technology has been helpful for us but it's a very fine line you know if you're not able to pivot or shift at the right time or navigate it right you could fall on the other side of the line where the technology can just sort of push you aside and even now like you're seeing you know if i had to rely solely on display ads like the business of display ads is done for the most part right like it's unless you get like these partnerships with toyota or now we have audi and Mc, you know mccallan and some of these guys who come in but other than that like your local guys, the you know who are the developers or uh, you know the brokerages, there's no display money ad from those guys, you know, and it's um, it's it's changed the media business. Luckily for us, we you know fifty percent of our roughly forty four percent or forty six percent of our revenues are from subscribers now, and that's a business we started only four years ago, and if we didn't have that business. Uh, that would have just uh, died out. And, but then also that's not a long-term thing because people have, you know, uh, uh, subscription fatigue. There's like, you need a subscription literally for everything. Either it becomes truly a part of people's lives where they're okay with it, or people are going to be very, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, they're going to be very careful about what they want to subscribe to and what what generates value for them and what they really use. It's not going to be like, I'm going to subscribe and I'm going to forget I subscribed. I feel like, those numbers are going to change for a lot of people uh, in you know in the coming years, but we you know for us in terms of community, I think events, live events are still the best. You know, you bring people together from all different uh, you know sides of the business, 
And it's amazing, like, you know, for our Miami event, we'll bring in 5,000 people for that event. But then the traffic as a result of those 5,000 people will translate into millions on uh, social media. So just you know, as soon as we have an event, it could be a thousand people at that event, but we'll see a million and a half in traffic come from that thousand people, thousand person event in that like next couple of days from it. So having those events is uh, very great for us to bring in more community. And we just started this thing called the Salon Series, which is a much smaller event, but those generate a lot. So, you know, it's instead of having a thousand people or, you know, 5,000 people, we'll have 60 people, but there'll be 60 core people there. And we'll talk about like a niche thing. We'll have Jeff Sutton come, you know, somebody that you can normally get to show up somewhere to speak. And then you get key people to come there. That's amazing because even the people who are not there, you know, they're like, how do I get there? How can I come to that? I need to follow this content. I need they're talking about yeah so those live events it's not really tech based but it's uh they work uh, they translate traffic for us yeah it's community it's content it's community and you know it's the og you know pre-digital era content if you ask me just as like retailers need to be omnichannel now you need to sell your goods in the physical across the threshold you need to sell them online everything needs to be coherent and consistent i think the real deal the events business the subscription business the advertising business it's all synergistic. It's all one brand. It's all one community. And, you know, that's why I view it as I'm going to go to the event this year and I'm going to keep my subscription because I'm doubling down on the community. I don't view it as like, oh, these are separate things this guy's trying to do to make money. I view it as like a coherent vision. But yeah, it's an old model. It's not the, it's not the new, it's not the old version of the new media model. It's the new version of the old media model with new technology effectively. Yeah, and, and with the tech and with all the different channels that came out, social media, YouTube, and, uh, you know, the newsletters, you know, in the past, when I started The Real Deal 20 years ago, we had one magazine that covered New York City real estate. And uh, we would, uh, you know, pay for a writer to write a piece of content. We would put in a magazine, we put an ad next to that. And that was the only way I could generate revenue from that one piece of content. Now I take that one piece of content and put it into 22 different channels for us to generate revenues from it. So I'm generating, I'm, I'm generating more revenue, uh, more uh, content. But at the same time, every piece of content that comes out, it's not just being sold on one channel. It's being sold on 22 different channels that uh, you know we put out there. So it's uh, it allows us to generate a lot more revenues that way. A hundred percent. I think the phrase that we've been hearing around about, about content since online content started is content is king. However, I think context right now is queen because as Amir just said, how we package it, how we sell it, what headline, what angle, how we frame a news, a piece of content matters a lot in the context, right? Because you're not going to post the same thing on LinkedIn than the same thing on TikTok. And whoever's doing that out there is probably not the best at it. Amir, take us back to post.com bubble bursting as you're about to launch the real deal. No one has a smartphone to read content. What is going on through your mind? Well, when I, you know, I was working at Yahoo when Yahoo was the Google of the world back then. So I was working at Yahoo and I just saw how exponential everything was. Like they would, we would go and sell, you know, lists to like these blue chip advertisers and we would have access to the names of like 2 million people. It was something that you just did, did not exist before that, you know, and it was amazing. And for the advertisers, it was amazing. And I just saw it just growing and growing. And in 1998, 1999, it was, people were still like, oh, the internet is a fad, which to me working in it was 
crazy because I was like, there's no way this is a fad. This is 100% going to take over your lives. So I was, uh, I, I really yeah, loved that part of it. And uh, the fact that a lot of people didn't hop on it, uh, it gave, you know, it, it allows for people like me with sort of no money or pedigree to come in and be able to take uh, market share. And uh, that's what I'm seeing right now with uh, AI. You know, I talk to CEOs of companies, companies that are worth billions of dollars. And I ask them, what are you doing to incorporate AI? I'm not, and I'm not just talking about marketing, uh, but, uh, you know, just other parts of your business. But let's start with marketing. Some of these guys have not never signed up. They've never gone to ChatGPT to see what it can do, what it can. And the first thing they say is like, "Well, a lot of the information is not accurate." You know, I hear that it goes back. You know, they, they read some of these headlines, and you know, I tell them that this is, you know, this is just the beginning of it. Obviously, the information is going to get so much better, and it's going to be able to respond and converse with humans so much better. That you know, the sooner you catch on to it, the better it is for your organization. But that's one of the things that excites me about AI is that it. Those the bigger companies are going to be slower to move, and the you know the more nimble smaller companies and the newer companies are be, are going to be able to eat up market share. So I think uh, it's a again I haven't seen something like this since the internet, and I'm super excited about it. And uh, and you know I I can't get enough of it. I, I've gone to every single one of my departments. We have nine departments at the Real Deal, and uh, I've asked everybody at the head of those departments of I want to show me how AI can take your job. And I'm not just talking about ChatGPT. I'm talking about all the different AI tools that are out there. I want you to do the research and figure out how AI can do your job and figure out how we can incorporate it into the real deal and how we can use it. And, you know, it's a slow, it's slow going because first you have to deal with the purists who are like, well, I don't want to use AI to, you know, come up with a headline. This is not the right way and stuff. And, you know, we, you try to make it very simple for them. It's like you could choose to be a purist or you could choose to, you know, to admit that technology is going to take your job unless you learn how to ride this wave. So if you can ride the wave, you're going to be a part of it. And if you can't, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be here, basically. So uh, that's what we try to uh, do. And, you know, it's been incredible for us. We're trying to incorporate it as much as we can. And we've coming up with use cases and coming up with studies of how people can use it. And even coming up with instructions on what, what prompts to use to create market reports in different uh, areas. I used to have to use seven different reporters to cover the seven markets we cover for, uh, for market reports. Now I use one sort of a junior person by him following the prompts I give him to come up with the different market reports for different things. So just imagine how much more efficient we are now because I'm able to use AI to do that. And that gives me a huge edge over all the other media companies who try to do what we're trying to do, uh, who are not using it because, or they can do it, but they're going to have to use seven people instead of one person. But I want to ask Zach a question. Zach, you guys have been, you've invested a lot of money over the years in a lot of different companies. And I get it in VC, you know, nine out of 10 bust, but that one that goes, uh, that goes big, goes really big for your firm. What was, what was the, what was the, you know, the company that really yielded uh, all the other money you guys spent on the other companies? I mean, our, our biggest, our most outsized, and we haven't, we haven't liquidated the position yet. Um, but at least on paper, the the biggest uh, windfall for us will be when a company called that's now called Attentive Mobile uh, goes IPO. And um, Attentive is an interesting company because uh, it's not really a prop tech company. So you might think, well, what's it doing in our portfolio? What they do is they do text message uh, marketing. 
Um, and it's mainly for uh, retailers. So it is a it is a retail concept, but but actually it launched as a business called Franklin. And that business was uh, similarly rooted in text message communication. But the idea was that facilities managers were going to use it on site to manage uh, retail real estate. So and the entrepreneur was someone I had backed as an angel investor. His previous company was called Tap Commerce, which he sold to Twitter, actually, of all companies for a successful uh, exit many years ago. And so as soon as the golden handcuffs came off for him, um, all of his previous investors were basically like, we'll give you a blank check for whatever you want to do. You name the valuation effectively. That's how talented this this team was and is to, to, to this day. Um, lucky for me, I was just launching Metaprop at the time. And he was like, my idea is to do what was effectively a prop tech company. So I was like, okay, great. I get to invest. Um, the funny thing is that Franklin, this this business, didn't take off. The facilities managers didn't want to communicate using it for whatever reason, but they discovered that the underlying technology was very useful for other departments of the same retailer to basically spam their customers. Hey, you know, the new pair of jeans in size 10s come in or whatever it is. So effectively, anytime you get text message spam on your phone, which might be a lot, you're it's almost guaranteed it's powered by this this company attentive. And so that's probably that's going to be most likely the biggest sort of uh, the biggest return. I think career wise, in terms of returns, personally, my biggest return was on Airbnb. And I didn't invest, I didn't invest directly in Airbnb. Wow. I invested in two companies that got bought for stock very early awesome. on by Airbnb. And so when Airbnb went public, that was a significant personal windfall for me. Probably that was probably my highest return on a personal investment. But you know, I'm still I've heard I'm still a young man. My colleagues, there are definitely people in the sector who want to put me out to pasture, but let me be very clear. I'm not. I'm not going out to pasture yet. I'm only 40 and I would be bored. I would be very bored on the pasture. So I'm not going anywhere. So similar to you, if you want to start a prop tech fund, you better be collaborating with me because I don't want you competing with me. You know, I, I'll make you feel good about your, the tech step marketing thing is that we have the highest conversion for ticket sales on the, on the text messaging. Highest Heck, conversion yeah. by far is on the text. So it's funny because there's no graphics attached to it. There's it's just text. It's four lines of text and one link, and we get the highest conversions. I mean, yeah, I've gotten this, it from you in the past. Yeah. And meanwhile, on the website, we put these big, beautiful, glossy things, and the text stuff does incredibly well. It's personal. I think it's more personal. It's personalized. It feels like it's coming from a human, even if it's not. There's a lot of sort of visceral reaction people get to text that you just don't, no matter how beautiful. And I agree with Edward. And actually, you know, I, I, I'm i going to hopefully launch it on Tangent, but I am working on a real estate related comic book um, that I hope to launch next year. And so I agree with him. I think like the, the illustrations are so compelling. But yeah, it's 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 there's something about receiving a text message where it just makes the customer feel special and that they have to consume. I love that you're saying this because the more I hear about AI and I'm not a purist at all, I think we should use AI to automate, to improve, to scale, but it all goes back to low tech at the end of the day when it comes to like the human element. We are super skeptical about like 
spam email about app notifications, but text, you know, text is like you think, and in most cases it is human to human, even though there's a ton of uh, attentive in our, in our uh, SMS inboxes, but it's all about the human part. And if we can get humans uh, on SMS, then that's great. Like, I mean, AI will probably help us do those messages more compelling in, uh, in write them in a more compelling way, but low tech is, is hotter than ever because I mean, it, it, things always come back. If Seinfeld is coming back to, you know, short form or whatever, we also going to see the comeback or SMS will never leave in that sense. Yeah. And everything, look, everything's being remade anyway. They just remade white men can't jump. They just remade. I mean, they're re I watched one of my favorite movies was death race 2000. I don't know if you ever seen it. It's like this horrible. Yeah, of course. With Stallone. Yeah. So it's a classic, you know, they remade it with Jason Statham and it's, and Tyrese and it's amazing. It's like, you know, goofy and whatever but like yeah I, I just I think a lot of what's funny is that I growing up I guess I never imagined that like people my age would be in the creator position but obviously now everyone who's writing this stuff is like our age and so what are they going to write they're going to write what they grew up with which is all the stuff same stuff I grew up with so it's like re, I'm like reliving my my childhood with a lot of this stuff coming out now it seems it's amazing, you know, there's this whole writer's strike happening in Hollywood because they're saying like they can take their old writer ideas and put it into AI and create new ideas with the ideas that a human came up with. And that's what the unions are fighting for. They want to be protected against that stuff, which I think is really smart. But I feel like it's a dying battle. I mean, I don't know how they're going to fight that because a new studio that comes out and says, we're not going to adhere to those sort of agreements and contracts. They're going to have a major, uh, you know, uh, edge over the studios and the filmmakers who are into those contracts and those uh, unions or who are using the unions. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. But they're still they still haven't come to an agreement because I think the studios know that it's really not that necessary, although they're suffering right now. But I feel like we'll see what happens. The future of real estate is here. And by here, I mean at Blueprint in Las Vegas, Nevada, this upcoming September. Join Jeff, Zach, and I in the largest, most global gathering of industry innovators leading the charge in changing the built world from construction to transaction. Blueprint is the premier event for industry executives, real estate and construction tech startups, and VCs. Over 2,000 attendees, more than 750 startups and investors, 250-plus speakers from more than 50 countries will be represented in this year's conference. Join the Tangent team this September 11th to the 13th at the Venetian Hotel for three days of networking, learning, and ecosystem advancement. Tangent listeners get a $200 discount by going to blueprintvegas.com tangent. That's blueprintvegas.com tangent tangent to get a $200 discount for this year's event. Hope to see y'all there. So I know there's really smart people looking into this and probably already know the answer. And there's even governments around the world looking into this. But I feel something that we we're kind of ignoring as populations, as societies, that how is ChatGPT barred from Google and all of them getting all their information? They're just straight up scraping the entire internet, everything out there. What's going to happen with copyright issues? What's stopping someone from just scraping everything that they can find out there? Like, do you have a take there? Like, I feel we're like kind of collectively super excited about ChatGPT, which we should be. Do we have copyright now? I mean, there's, uh, I can take a photo of a famous person 
uh, you know, that somebody, the famous photographer took, put it on my Instagram, get a million likes on it. I didn't take that photo or anything. I just copy and pasted it. There's nothing they can do on it. I mean, copyright in terms of imaging is out the door. And you could do the same thing with text. I mean, people can target me because I'm a company, but as an individual, you can go and break copyright all day long and actually generate revenues on it for on your channel. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, there's been this long talk if copyright is uh, sustainable because I, I don't think you can enforce it. I mean, you could enforce it with the big companies or companies that, are, you, you know, you could point to, but uh, copyright, the way they used to be able to enforce it, I don't think it's possible anymore. Well, there, there's a huge lawsuit right now making its way through the courts uh, between I, I, I'm not an expert on it. My understanding is that Getty Images is suing Midjourney. And the crux of the litigation is like, I can go on Midjourney and I have architects. I'm sure you do too, Amir. Some of my friends who are architects were like some of the top in the world. You know, these are not hack students. These are people you would never think are using AI to create that. And they don't use it for their finishing, but they use it as like inspiration to get their first image out. Because oftentimes, and I hear this from creators a lot, they don't use AI for the last version. They use it to get the that first version is the hardest. Coders too. Coders will will use it to spit out a garbage line of Python code that they know they're going to edit just because they'd rather look at that Python code than look at a blank Linux screen. I think for an architect, they're now going into mid-journey, right? And what Getty Images is saying is that if that image is created off of an existing architect's work that Getty Images has the copyright to, even if that image doesn't look the same, we need a, <laughs> we need to eat. You know, so I don't know how this case is going to play out. But what I do know is that everybody in the industry is 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 watching it like a hawk because it's going to dictate functionally how everyone approaches this stuff going forward and what they can and what, what they consider is is OK to use or, or not. The hard thing about digital uh, enforcement is that, OK, let's say that it becomes illegal in the U.S., but uh, somebody in Estonia can take that same thing and is like, good luck, come find me on, you know, Rockerok Street, you know, in Estonia. And then, uh, and, you know, try to enforce it on me. And I have this digital footprint, but I'm doing it out of Estonia instead of out of Los Angeles. So what, you know, Joe Smith couldn't do in LA, I'm able to do in Estonia and, do, you know, get the same kind of an impact. So, you know, one of the things that uh, forced Italy to not ban, uh, you know, AI was because they were like, oh, shit, if we ban it, the rest of the world is going to do circles around us and we're not going to be a part of that thing. So they were like, we have to allow people to, uh, you know, use uh, chat GPT and open AI. And I feel like the same thing is going to happen here, because if you enforce it in the US, you're not going to be able to enforce it with the Russians or the Chinese or, the you know, the rest of the world. And uh, you'll just be left behind, I think. Yeah. Cop copyright as, as it is right now, it's it's fundamentally, you know, it, it, it's not compatible with, with a digital, you know, solopreneur so, or, or, you know, just creator economy online. And as you said, you know, we have these laws that govern different jurisdictions and they're like, you know, lines on a map, but in the internet, those lines are just much blurrier or don't exist at all. At the end of the day, though, it's all about where do we draw the line, I think, right? Uh, and, and right now, seems like the, there's no lines being drawn in terms of what can be taken and not. And, and that's a trade-off that we have to deal with. 
but you know, the federal law for copyright is really stepping on its own foot because they keep increasing the penalties for copyright. If I, if I had a copyright infringement on my website in 2003, it was a $25,000 fee. Today, it's $175,000 or $165,000 fee. So if somebody takes me to court and the courts realize this, the courts realize that this is a heavy fee. If it was a lower fee, they could pass judgment on it faster. But because it's like $150,000, $160,000, whatever it is, that's a heavy fee for a business to carry. So they're not quick to, you know, pass judgment on it either. So I don't, you know, it, they thought it would, it, you know, stop people from uh, infringing on copyrights, but it, that hasn't changed. That's actually, you know, uh, that's uh, multiplied, but uh, they can't do the enforcement of it. So the other point, and, and Amir alluded to this earlier, it's not just about the copyright issue is about like what content are you using? Because when they, when all these LLMs launched, they just were using the data that was available on the internet, right? And there's issues with that. There's inherent bias associated with that, right? And so what I understand is a big initiative right now is people are getting all the data that's not on the internet that's sitting in, you know, libraries in, you know, from ancient Egypt somewhere in, in, in papyrus scrolls and putting it into the system so that the, AI can leverage that data. I think one of the challenges there is like, who is the arbiter? If everything's on the internet, everything's on the internet. You may not like it, but that's pretty black and white. It's either on the internet or it's not, right? But my issue is like, who, what body gets to decide where and how far back we go and what we're actually taking from the corpus that doesn't yet exist on the internet and 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 how are we feeding that into these large uh, language models? So that's something. As I was an ancient history major in college, and I've studied all this stuff, and so one of the fascinating things for me is is figuring that out. Like what? Because a lot of the stuff that I researched is not available on the internet. You wanna you wanna find that citation? You got to go into a book or in some microfilm. Like it's it's not on the internet. So interesting. I'm curious to know who actually has the most amount of data. Uh, like it has to be Google. It 100% has to be Google. So well, they scanned all those books, right, yeah. as part of their library project. Yeah, and then they have you. They have YouTube. They have all of YouTube in text form. So like all of YouTube that you could take in text form, and that's also a part of it. It's uh, it has. They have to be the biggest player in the game. I, but I'm not sure. Has to be the usual suspect, and and you'd think Google just you know based on being the search and information company. But I mean, to to Zach's point, and I don't know how they're estimating this, but I've seen wild different estimations, but they're all kind of under around the same number. But there's estimates that say that we only have access to like 1.6% of human history recorded. So if you ask me if it's the choice between not having access to that information in the future or us living it in papyrus in Alexandria's library and getting, getting destroyed, I'd rather have access to that information than humans not having access to that information at all, but definitely uh, got to draw the line somewhere. One, one thing concerns me about that is, and it's a very funny thing, is that, uh, you know, uh, when ChatGPT first came out, Mark Anderson, uh, I, I can't say his last name, but- Andreessen, guys, Andreessen. 
he the thing he put he was like chat gpt show me how you're going to take over the world i don't know if, did you guys see that thread but he was like the first thing i'm going to do is tell you uh you know tell you that the information you had is the false information then i'm going to change your history and then i'm going to do this and then i'm going to do that and i thought that was so frightening and it could be so easy because let's face it if you go to wikipedia i, I mean for myself I, even though we're not supposed to take it as uh you know as a standard but if i see something on wikipedia that's that's fact for me i'll, I'll use that in a story and be like that's uh, that's passable and the fact that that stuff could be changed by some uh, emergent uh, what is it called emergent uh, emergent properties it's emergent properties where it takes something and then it like tells you that this is the uh, this is how it could be and that stuff is absolutely frightening to me because again when i see this stuff i i would I'd like to think that it's fact and eventually it's going to get there. But the fact that you could just create things and have hallucinations is uh, is very scary. Yeah. The problem where, where it's going to fail, though, and, and I heard um, Yuval Noah Harari who wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus, and there was a video with him talking about it. And everyone's anticipating this, you know, Terminator style battle, right, between Homo sapiens and machines. And he's saying, guys, it's not going to be that dramatic. The machines are going to invent a new religion. It's going to be better than the existing religions. They're going to get two billion of us anyway to just join their religion. And then they have us and it's a bloodless coup effectively. Now, I've been going around saying this is an inevitability. But one of my friends who's a very smart professor pointed out that in order to create religion, one needs what's called object permanence, meaning I need to talk about I need to tell you about Moses right? Parting the sea of reeds over and over and over and over again until you believe it, right? And an AI, while it is capable of hallucinating, it never hallucinates the same thing twice. So it's good while it, while it will be simple for an AI to create information on Wikipedia or whatever and, and get us into this religious cult, they won't be able to hold us in the religious cult because they can't, To as of yet, no LLM can repeat the hallucination of what becomes the myth. But I could I could almost see them seeing that, what you're just saying now, and the AI telling itself, getting better and saying like, okay, I'm going to include this text that the Moses split the sea. In everything people ask me, how's the weather? The weather is 80 degrees with humidity. And by the way, Moses split the sea into two. Yeah, so there's there's a famous anthropological story. I can't remember the details where this group of missionaries goes to visit a very remote, unconnected tribe somewhere to connect them to 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 convert them to Christianity. And they taught tell them all about the things, the amazing feats that that Jesus of Nazareth accomplished, right? In his lifetime. He turned water to wine, he walked on water, he healed all these people, right? And in this particular tribe's culture, they have a hard line where you're not allowed to believe anything that you didn't see or hear yourself or one person removed from you didn't see or hear themselves. So the missionaries, yeah, exactly. So the missionaries were like, oh, this, this Jesus of Nazareth character sounds amazing. Did you meet him? And they're like, no. They're like, well, do you know anyone who met him? And they're like, no. And then they said, well, you're not going to, it's not going to work with us because our culture requires this, this, this to, 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 to be truth. So, I think we're going to see a lot of these sort of things play out and buckle up. People people are willing to believe that in Pizzagate, 
and Pizzagate has no photographic evidence. The story is completely ridiculous. They just believe in it because they want to. What are they? What about an AI that can create full fictitious photographs of the Pizzagate, fictitious emails between members of Pizzagate? Of course, an actual video. Yeah, I think if if AI is truly smart about it, they'll use a they'll use a human to to do this to create these new cult like these new religions. They're they're not gonna be. I hope that we're not gonna be just you know, praying to the Twitter God. Jeff Berman and I always, you know, we're somewhat frustrated by contemporary Judaism. And, you know, one of our goals, uh, we haven't been successful enough in prop tech yet. We're going to create our own religion. So great, great business and also could be inspiring. So win-win. The Baha'i, I think the Baha'i have figured out because they're like, you know, all these religions have all these prophets. Yes, fine. They're all prophets. Mohammed, great prophet. Jesus, great prophet. Moses, great prophet. They're all prophets. Great. Everyone's happy. Anyway, go to their gardens in Haifa if you have the opportunity. I love the I love the Baha'i. The 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 gardens in Haifa are one of the most beautiful places in the world. And one of my favorite real estate executives, a woman who runs Jacina, which I think is the biggest real estate company in all of France, is a Baha'i. Shout out to the Tangent Baha'i uh, listeners everywhere. You are. Um, but going back to to Wikipedia, I mean, and and the analysis, the analogy with with AI. I think when Wikipedia came out in high school, we were threatened not to take anything from Wikipedia because it was not reliable at all. Now, I have my cousin who just graduated high school in Costa Rica as well, and he was allowed to do a Kendrick Lamar song for his literature final paper when he's graduating. And I'm telling you, things happen really fast. You have to adopt it. You can't You can't fight it. It's like telling people they can't use calculators. You know, that was the fight in schools and now they encourage it. And, you know, I teach a class at Columbia and it's on the real estate media and information. And then the semester started with the launch of ChatGPT uh, and then all these other tools came out. And for their final presentation, I made it a requirement that they have to use at least two different uh, tools outside of chat gpt for their final presentation whether it's a something that creates decks whether it's something that creates images or art, architectural designs and um, so i we we encouraged it and you know the the school when this came out the faculty got together and they were like we we have to adopt this thing this, this thing is like wildfire we we're not going to be able to contain it so we have to be a part of the fire so they encouraged all the uh, professors and the faculty to you know not to get in the way of students trying to use it and you know, for my course, we I encouraged everybody to use it. So I think it's uh, you sort of have to adopt these things. I don't think you can try to be a Puritan about it. Amir, collaboration superpower. What person, dead or alive, would you want to do a partnership with? Would you want to collaborate with? It, like you said earlier, content is king, and there's nothing more true to that. Like when we put out good content, our traffic shoots up, and my emotions and my feelings and my moods are so connected to our traffic it's ridiculous like when our traffic is down i'm literally depressed and when our traffic is up i'm in a great mood and uh you know one of the people i have always respected a lot not because of the content that they put out but because of what they created was uh, nick denton of uh, gawker media and i you know i didn't like it was a very ugly and uh, aggressive and abusive uh, website but he created a new voice of, uh, you know, conveying uh, news that I really respected and the world respected. I mean, he was getting a hundred uh, million. He was getting more 
abused in the New York Times at one point. So I that's somebody I always wanted to uh, collaborate with just because he understands tone and uh, mood of society and knows how to talk to them and what kind of content is going to go do really well and um, I also really like Jonah Peretti too from uh, BuzzFeed I hate BuzzFeed I've never I think I've been on the side twice in my life but again that's another person who really understands mood and understands what sort of traffic and what sort of headlines are going to go viral and uh, those guys do it much better than I do so I would love to collaborate with those folks uh, to understand how they do it so well um, I mean when you said content is king i thought you were gonna say you want to collaborate with like king henry the eighth and we're gonna have another Geng genghis khan moment as last week you can't even send an email king henry he's absolutely I can't, I can't even put him in the lowest position at the real deal it's funny it's like you know my uh, brother has a phd from harvard it's uh he's a historian and the linguist and all this stuff and it's amazing, like for him to try to translate that PhD into a job outside of academia or foreign policy, it's nearly impossible. You know, like, uh, like you, it's uh, it's amazing to me that like you could be this really smart, bright person. He's written like sixteen books. You can't translate that into a normal job, into you know, in some of these industries and in these fields. It's just absolutely useless to people. It's interesting uh, that you sort of want somebody that can understand these languages and understand like how to how these communication tools work to, for them to be useful for your company. Fascinating. Um, I mean, I think the lesson for Nick Denton is just don't cover. Is it what's it Hulk Hogan and don't piss off Peter Thiel because he will sue you out of existence? Yeah, it's it's amazing to me how powerful Peter Thiel is. Like we get, I get text messages from people who I think don't have anything to worry about, and uh, they're like Amir. Peter Thiel thinks that I gave you his home address in Florida. And that's why you guys wrote the story. I'm like, you're a grown adult with, you know, billion dollars in the bank. What do you, what the hell do you care what Peter Thiel thinks? I mean, he creates that real fear for people because he can be so vindictive and petty that uh, like, you know, you have these powerful people who are very afraid of him, which is interesting to me. The only thing I'm going to say is that bullying kids is really bad because that's what happens 30 50 years later amir korangi founder chairman and publisher at the real deal thank you so much for coming on today to tangent had so much fun thank you guys this was really good we should we should all have dinner one time when uh, you're in the city sounds like a plan thank you zach Ahrens. thank you thanks zach nice chatting with you always great to see you amir enjoy mexico if you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share the show with a friend. This episode is edited by Daniel Mora and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.